0: Normally during uh, summer, I say normally. It's been two years. I guess we can call it normal at that point. But for the past two years, we've taken a section of the summer to go through one of the prophets. Uh, it's been the minor prophets. Um, we're not going to do that this year, although I guess I still get to call it prophets since it's going to be in First Samuel. Um, but we're going to spend a few weeks in First Samuel. I have had the privilege of studying uh, narrative, and over the past really a year and a half now, and I'm hoping to share kind of the excitement and joy I've had in it, uh, in the Old Testament narrative especially, with you as, uh, as we study for just a, a few weeks in First Samuel during our summer break. You know, fear is a very real part of life. We encounter it, if not every day, every week, although I dare to say it's more often than not, it's not only every day, it's multiple times a day. Among the most common fears you find, if you are to pull persons, you're going to find near the top of the list, no surprise here, fear of heights, fear of flying, fear of spiders, fear of snakes, fear of germs, fear of sickness, fear of people. It's clear from reading or watching the news that fear is a significant part of their wholesale strategy. There's a reason that news is primarily bad news. People don't seem to have the same interest, the same attention span for good news. In fact, if a news organization were to dedicate itself only to good news, it would probably go out of business. If news organizations did not have fear or did not manufacture fear, they wouldn't be around very long. Thankfully for them, the world has no shortage of things that cause fear on a grander scale, whether it's war, whether it's politics whether it's local or natu- national violence or natural disasters, there is always something to report that will generate fear. And while fears can be irrational, that's what the word phobia really means. It's an irrational fear. Now, not all phobias are completely irrational. There's a need to be a little bit afraid of venomous snakes. While fears can be irrational, not all fear is irrational. In fact, there are many times where a lack of fear is downright foolish. It would be wrong for me, as I just said, not to fear a rattlesnake on the trail in front of me, and it should lead to some wise action on my part. It would be silly of me not to fear an F4 tornado barreling down upon my home and to sit out on the front porch in a rocking chair to see what would happen. On the other hand, fear shouldn't cause me to be completely petrified. Fear can and should be the catalyst for saving me and preserving my life. The reality is equally true when it comes to our faith in God, to our relationship with God, and to His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul asks asks this question in Romans 8 when he says, Who will separate us from the love of God? Will it be tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about fear. More specifically, we're going to discuss how we move from fear to faith. That's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. How do we move from fear to faith? So that we do not remain paralyzed by our fear, and so that we do not allow fear or the cause of that fear to reign in our lives. I wonder if you would turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you don't already recognize it, it will only take you a moment. First Samuel, Samuel chapter 17 begins. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Soko and Azekah. In Ephes Damimim, Saul and the men of Israel were gathered in camp in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits. And a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze graves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. The head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and he shouted at the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up and battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So begins one of the Bible's most famous stories. And even though it's well known and it's famous, You're probably already reading ahead and ignoring me right now. I'm hoping that you will listen to it more carefully than ever before. Because it contains a profound message. A message for people like us at a time like this. Pray with me if you would. Father, we do give you thanks. You work wonderfully in our lives, both individually and corporately. Father, we also want to confess our weaknesses, our fears, our failures in serving you, our sin. Father, as we open your word to a familiar story this morning, the start of a very familiar story, would you help us to pay special attention, to stop in our tracks, to open our ears, and to see what it is that you will show us this morning and in the weeks to come. Would you help us in this process of moving from this great dismay and fear, a fear that we understand because we have fears in our life? Help us to move to faith, to demonstrating that in how we live, how we speak, how we act. Thank you for your word which is faithful to accomplish the purpose for which you send it. Would we respond rightly to your word? Amen. Well, the story of David and Goliath, as we've already noted, is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. It's a story many of us probably first heard as children. In fact, I doubt that there is a single children's Bible story book that exists, or has ever existed, that did not include the story of David and Goliath, probably with pictures. But it is, I hope you will see, I hope we will see together very much a story for all of us, not just for children. It contains a message that all of us, especially us adults, need to hear, perhaps even more so in a world like ours where we are surrounded by so many fearful things. And it would be foolish to ignore this reality, just as it would be foolish to set up a beach umbrella and beach chair as a hurricane is hitting land. We are surrounded in a world that has fearful things. Pretending that there is nothing to fear, pretending there is no danger, is itself incredibly dangerous. But what we need is perspective. We need to rightly evaluate the danger. We need to be asked, are we fearing the right things? Because the circumstances and events that cause us to fear should cause us to evaluate our faith our faith in God, and our faith in his word. The story in 1 Samuel 17, as it unfolds, is about fear. You saw that at the end of verse 11. It's about fear, and it's even more so about the Bible's surprising and wonderful answer to our fears. And it's not going to be a simple answer, but it's a very real and important answer. This morning, we have before us the opening scene, and there's a very real enemy. The story begins on a day many, many years ago. I would think it would be about 1,000 B.C. And it centers around a valley, a very wide valley, that runs east to west in Judea. It's about 19 miles to the west of Bethlehem, if you know something of Israel's geography. It's a valley known as the Valley of Elah. And it is on the one side of this valley that we read in verse 1 that the Philistines gathered their armies, arranged their armies for battle. And the Philistines, you may already know, were a powerful little nation on the western border of Israel. And they were trouble. Again and again and again, they harassed, they pillaged, and they attacked Israel. If you're interested, you could read as a background to our study over the next few weeks, the book of 1 Samuel. Be well worth your time. And you will notice how again and again and again the Philistines sought to pick a fight with Israel. And here they are at it again. Now Israel's king at this time, the first king of Israel, is Saul. He'd been appointed largely, you may remember, to deal with the Philistines. That was his job. Israel cried out for a king who had go forth and lead them in battle against specifically the Philistines because that was the most troublesome enemy Israel had at the time. problem is, he wasn't very good at it. They were a continual and constant threat. The people had pleaded with Samuel the prophet to appoint a king over them. In 1 Samuel 8, they said in verse 20, that we also may be like all the nations... That our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The irony is thick with that statement, isn't it, in light of this story? Talk about buyer beware. So they chose Saul. And Saul had not done a very good job up to that point. Even his victories were described in 1 Samuel 14 30 as not very great. Imagine that. You win a victory over the Philistines, and the record goes down as it's a win with an asterisk. It's not very great. Well, this time the Philistines had advanced well into the land that belonged to Israel. And we see that in verse 1. They have gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Sokoh and Azekah in Ephes damin. Ephes damin, means border of blood. It was likely the scene of many battles before and after, where the enemies had clashed at that border. And the Philistines were a good nine to ten miles on the Israel side of that Israel and Philistine border. And so as you might expect, in verse 2, we find King Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped on the other side of the valley of Elah and drawn up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. It was a defensive move. The Philistines are on the march. They've got to stop them. A little slow, they let them get 9 to 10 miles in before they're able to at least put a stop to this. But even the narrator's description implies the lack of leadership that we have from Saul at this time. Look at this. Notice in verse 1 the active voice that is used to describe the Philistines gathered. You can can sense the organization, the discipline of them arraying for battle. You get to verse 2, and it all switches to the passive. It's, oh yeah, by the way, the Israelites, they had gathered together. It's in the passive. They were simply gathered. They lacked leadership. The wide valley of Elah ran between Soco and Azekah, and the hills rose to the north and to the south of the valley. And so, try to picture the scene we have in verse three for just a moment. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side; it would have been to the south. They would have been up on the mountains. Now, a mountain in Israel is more like a speed bump. It's more like what we call Georgia mountains. It's not what you would have out in the Rockies. It's our Georgia mountains, but they're arranged on those hills, which helps because they can see what's going on in the valley. So they're on the south, and there's this valley between them, and Israel stood on the mountains on the other side, which would have been the north. And it's the setting for one of the Bible's most dramatic stories. In fact, it's really one of the most dramatic stories in the history of the world. You think about all the legends and every, every other story. Whether you've grown up in church or not, you know the story of David and Goliath. And it's a story of fear turning to faith and how that happened. What took place? Well, the action began like this. Look at verse 4. A champion came down out of the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath. Now, that word champion actually means the man in between. It's the man who would rise up, go between the armies, where champions would fight, they would battle. They would show off the strength of one army over the other. And he goes to stand in between. He strode down the mountain into the wide valley between the Philistines and the Israelites. And we're told his name. His name is Goliath. Now at this point, we don't really know if the Israelites knew his name. But we do. And it's a name that the Israelites would come to remember forever. Goliath is from Gath. Gath is one of the five principal or capital cities of the Philistines. You have Gaza, you have Gath, you have Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Ekron. Gath is the nearest, closest of those cities, only a few miles away from this scene that is taking place. But even more important than his name, more important than the city from which he came, is what he looked like. So again, try to put yourself, try to imagine this as the Bible describes him. You're You're standing on the northern side of the slopes of these mountains and you watch this person descend from the other side into the valley. And the description here is really quite unusual. The Bible and Bible stories don't often take this much time to describe a single person. When it does, it's like everything moves in slow motion. Everything else falls out of frame and our focus is honed in on this person and the first thing we note is his height now if you wonder how we got such good details about his height and his weaponry and everything else that follows you'll have to stick around till the end of the story but this man was six cubits in a span nine and a half feet tall he was huge Then there was his armor. He was covered in metal, mainly bronze, protecting almost every inch of his body. And the Israelites in those days had nothing like it. There was nothing like this. This was high-tech weaponry and armor. Israel had not caught up to this. And as the metal sparkled and reflected in the sunlight, he must have been a dazzling sight, a brilliant sight there in the Valley of Elah. I mean, look at the helmet protecting his head. And then there's a coat of scale-like armor protecting his body, 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's over 130 pounds he was carrying on him. And then his legs, also covered by bronze armor. This man would have looked like a walking tank if they knew what a tank was. Protected from head to foot. Very, very powerful. You can imagine the Israelites looking down from their val- into the valley, their eyes popping out of their head, whispering in terrified voices, what is that? They'd never seen anything like it. But Goliath was not just huge and completely protected with his dazzling armor, he was wielding impressive weaponry. Verse 6 continues, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. The head of the spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. There was a huge bronze javelin across his back, which actually may be the word for a scimitar or a long curved sword, perhaps the very same sword that, well, you know the rest of the story. We won't skip ahead too much. And It carries a spear that's like a weaver's beam, and no one knows exactly what that means, although some think it refers to its size, which is certainly possible. It had to be a big spear. I think it refers to the loops that are on a weaver's beam. It was like that. It's a loop that would have been at the end of the spear, the butt of the spear, and functioned like, if you've ever heard of them, at laddle. It it allows the thrower to launch the projectile because he hooks his hand into into that loop, not just around the shaft, and he throws it. It would have given a lot more force and energy. The world record for throwing a javelin or a spear is 344 feet. The world record with a loop or at atlatl is nearly twice as long as 765 feet. It would have given him a lot more throwing force. And those world records weren't made by a nine and a half foot tall giant that had been throwing spears since he was a young boy. And then verse 7 tells us, His shield bearer went before him, likely as tall as the Philistine to protect him from any projectiles that Israelites might try to send at him as he stood there in the valley. So there he is, this menacing, powerful figure, the sun gleaming off of every bit of his armor and weaponry. You can see this imposing, this terrifying figure. And up until now, you have only seen him. Then we read in verse 8, you hear him. Across the valley, the voice of the Philistine monster thunders toward the Israelite camp on the northern slopes. In verse 8, he stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Now, on the one hand, that seems like a silly question, doesn't it? Well, you guys drew up in battle array. We figured it would be good for us to do that, too. But that's not what's going on here. It's not what Goliath is saying. In fact, he's not really even asking a question, he's engaging in psychological warfare. Goliath is asking, did you really think you could defeat the Philistines? Why have you even bothered to draw up in battle array? Did you really think King Saul and his army could defeat Goliath and the Philistines? And to make them more nervous, Goliath added in verse 8 Am I not the Philistine and you, servants of Saul? I'm what you're up against. The one you see before you, this nine and a half foot tall metal clad hulk. This is what a Philistine is. This is what you're up against. Are you sure you want to take on Philistines? You new band of sheep herders and farmers. Are you not just slaves of Saul? Are you sure you really want to fight the mighty Philistines? Take another look at me. And think again. Then he adds, here's an idea that will save us all a lot of trouble. The end of verse 8 choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It's an interesting choice of words. Choose a man for yourself. Because if you've been reading 1 Samuel and you get around to reading it, you'll realize that the Israelites had already chosen a man for themselves with that exact same language. You find this phrase used a number of times throughout 1 Samuel. In fact, Samuel tells the Israelites in 1 Samuel 12, 13, Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. You chose your king. You have chosen a man for yourselves. And who was that? It was Saul. In fact, Saul was the closest thing Israel had to a Goliath. There was no one like Saul, we read earlier in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 9-2, when they were looking for a king, they chose Saul because he was head and shoulders taller than every other man in Israel. There was no one else like him in Israel. He was the biggest, the best, and the baddest that Israel had to offer. And I have little doubt that those listening to the thundering rant of the giant Goliath that day in the Valley of Elah were thinking just that. We have chosen a man for ourselves, but it hasn't done us a lot of good thus far. It hasn't really worked out so well for us up to this point. So there was the challenge Goliath offered. Let a man come down out of the hills and into the valley where I stand waiting. Let the man you choose for yourselves come down and face the Philistine. And shouted Goliath, let winner take all. Look at verse 9. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Now, we realize, if you already know the end of the story, the Philistines don't really act with much integrity because, well, we all know the story. Goliath dies and they take off running. They don't want to be their servants. But there was the offer. And with those words, with those final words, a terrible silence fell over the valley of Elah. The word sank in. And several moments passed in which, who knows, maybe a man might, might come down from the Israelite ranks into the valley to take on the Philistine. And so they sit there, quiet. Would it happen? Could it happen? Is there anyone in Israel who can defeat this Philistine? And as we wait, standing there alongside them, there's no movement from the Israelite camp. Nothing whatsoever on the northern side of the valley. No one flinched. One dared hardly even breathe. And certainly not Saul. He wasn't stupid. He knew he would die in a moment. All is still in the valley of Elah. Till the silence is broken again by the thunderous voice in verse 10. Again, the Philistines said, I defy, a better word, is I scorn, I mock, I ridicule the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. He's saying, Israelites, you're a joke. Don't you have anyone able to fight a Philistine? And there he stood, a terrifying enemy. Well, finally this morning, look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Well, of course they were. Wouldn't you be? The enemy was too big. He was too powerful. He was too terrible for even King Saul to do anything about him. Only a fool would not have been afraid that day in the valley of Elah, don't you think? And what I'm going to ask you to do next is going to be rather difficult, but I want you to resist jumping ahead in our story this morning. Don't let your mind jump ahead yet. Do your best. Because this morning I want us to stand with the Israelites, gazing, astonished, terrified, down into the valley of Elah. I want us to try and stand with them and experience this terrifying feeling they had. And we can do that because we know to some extent what it is to be afraid. Fear is not some special emotion that they alone experienced that day around the valley of Elah. See, that experience of the Israelites that day so long ago is not so strange. Because each and every one of us, at one time or another, has experienced fear. Even more than that, there is, like Goliath, a very real enemy in this life that is the source of most of our fears. An enemy that is too big, that is too powerful, that is too terrible for even the biggest, the best, and the cleverest to do anything about. And like the Israelites, the more clearly you can see this enemy, the more reasonable it is that you are dismayed and that you are terrified. The Bible summarizes it this way with this disturbingly somber and accurate depiction and portrayal of the human life. The author of Hebrews, in chapter 2, if you're jotting notes, down in verse 15, notes that it's we who through fear of death are subjected to slavery all the days of our lives. King Saul and the Israelites were greatly afraid. Why? Because ultimately, Goliath wielded that day the power of death. We find that behind many of our fears, probably behind most of our fears, is ultimately our fear of death. And so we stand with the Israelites that day, gazing into the valley of Elah. And the note on which we will close this morning is this. Just imagine for a moment how utterly astounding it would be if, if perchance, perhaps, someone did walk down into that valley of Elah at Goliath's challenge. Someone did walk down and deal with the monster who was terrifying the army of Israel. Think about it for just a moment. What if there is someone who can defeat Goliath? If someone could destroy the one who wielded the power of death that day. Imagine that. Imagine that what that would do for you as an Israelite that day, listening to the taunts and the discouragement, and the fear that had washed over you, what would happen when you saw a champion walking down the slopes on your behalf to defeat death that day? What if that actually happened? What if you knew it had happened? What would that do to your fears? I want to encourage you this morning, because the message of the whole Bible is that what is going to happen in the valley of Elah, and and all of us know the story. We have some idea of what took place there through the rest of the story. doesn't mean don't come back, come back. But what took place in that valley for the people of Israel has happened for the whole world. That is the message of Jesus Christ. It is the message for the whole world, and it is bigger than the story of David and Goliath. The enemy is real. There is no doubt about that. It's as real as Goliath. It's more terrifying. But by the time we get to the end of the story in 1 Samuel 17 over the next couple of weeks, we will understand more deeply Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, every one of us in this room is a sinner. Every one of us has been condemned to death, and I'm not just talking about physical death, but a death that is described as the second death, separated from God from all eternity, in painful torment, worse than anything you can imagine. what makes us different or what should make us different, what gives us hope in the face of the fear of death is that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again so that the power of death would be destroyed. And if you're here this morning and have never repented of your sins, never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as the only one who can deliver you from sin and the power of death, which is hell, then do not leave this morning without doing that. for those of us who have experienced the forgiveness of sin and that victory over death what does that mean that the power of death has been removed how does that help you to live are you living as if death and hell have been conquered or are you still acting like you're under the threat of death what impact would it make to how you live again Take yourself back to 1,000 B.C. on the slopes of that northern hill or mountain. What impact would it have to how you lived, responded, thought, and felt if you saw one coming to defeat the threat of death that day? It's been done for us on a much greater scale. Does your life show a love for the one who delivered you? A love that's seen in obedience, that's seen in seeking to please him, to know him, to make him known. What would that look like? Well, please don't miss what's next in our story this following Sunday morning, because we're gonna continue to see this movement from fear to faith, and what it means to live with the knowledge and the reality that there is one who has conquered death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder we're beginning to see this morning. The reminder throughout the Old Testament that points and portrays and pictures Christ. The reason that we are here this morning, the reason we celebrate It's Christ's victory over death. If death had not been conquered, we would have no reason to be here this morning. And Father, we celebrate that. We rejoice in that. Father, we recognize that we do not always act as if that is the case. We do not always act as if we have been saved, as if we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Help us to do that. And Father, we pray for any who are still living under that fear of death, that they would call upon your name, that they would repent of their sin, that they would enjoy the blessing and the peace of no longer living under the fear of death.